As you know, we've been studying the basic doctrines of the Christian church. These doctrines are common to every denomination. It, they're they're the, you know, the basics. We start off with uh, revelation. You know, how do we know what we know? And then we have the three phases, the Trinity, God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And last week, we had the nature of man. So uh, now that we know what the nature of man is, we know we have a great need, right? So now that we know we have a great need, how is that going to be fixed? How is that need going to be fulfilled? So today's lesson is the doctrine of salvation. Salvation, finding our way to heaven. How do we get there? We all want to go to heaven. We all want eternal life. We all need forgiveness. How are we going to pull it off? Uh, Billy Graham had a great story. I, I assume it's true. He was at a strange town he'd never been to that he was going to speak at the local church. And before he spoke, he needed to mail some stuff. So he went out in his rent car, and he was driving around thinking he could find a post office real easy. He couldn't find it, so he stopped next to a kid. And he said, son, can you tell me where the post office is? And the kid said, oh, yeah. yeah. You go down two blocks, take a right at the light, and it'll be right there. And so Billy Graham says, well, you know, son, you really ought to come hear me speak tonight. Uh, if you do, I'll tell you how to get to heaven. And the kid says, Mr., you can't find the post office. <laughs> so, so we we can know how to get to heaven from the Bible, not, not from someone's directions, but from the Bible. That's where the information comes to us. And that's where it's clear. Um, and I'd like to start off with doing the, the negative side of that. Well... The Bible's going to tell us how to get to heaven, but what's interesting about human nature, as we studied last week, is everybody has got a different way to try to get to heaven that they've made up for themselves, <laughs> you know, and we talked about that last week. Uh, and so what I like to start off is how, how you can't get to heaven or how not to get to heaven or the basic ways that human beings uh, seem to come up with in order to get to heaven that are not correct. And they're not correct because everybody's thinking is wrong. They're going in the wrong direction, counting on the wrong things. And typically, I, I think the most prevalent is people think they can be saved by their own works. Uh, very much like this movie clip today, uh, these characters are, they mean well, they're trying to do good, but it just doesn't ever seem to work out. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, sometimes don't. The best laid plans don't work out, right? So how not to get to heaven? Uh, number one would be in the human race is typically they think they're saved by works. That doesn't work. You don't get to heaven by your own works. But people think they can do enough good deeds. They can live a good enough life, be obedient to whatever uh, formula that they appeals to them. And so they basically misjudge their own moral ethical ability is what happens. Uh, if you have your Bible there, turn to Ephesians 2.8.9, very clear passage. I'm sure you've heard it quoted uh, if you haven't ever studied it. But Ephesians 2.8.9 is a great contrast between how to and how not to. It gives you both of those. How to and not, how not to, a great contrast. 
It says, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. So you see the contrast? Everybody out there is thinking it's, it's all about me and what I do and who I am. But he says, no, it, it's through faith and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, so God is going to give you something if you'll just receive it. And here's the contrast, not as a result of works. It's the gift of God, but not as a result of works. So that, and, and don't miss this, a lot of people miss this part of this, it's very important, so that no one should boast. So what really happens when you say, I'm a good person, or I'm saved by works, or I've done this and done that, accomplished this, kept this law, what are you really doing? You're boasting. Can you imagine standing before the Almighty God and boasting like that? And you don't think you are, because you're in your own way of thinking, you're just saying, you know, I'm a good person and I've done this and done that and kept this law and blah, blah, blah. But in God's view, He's really seeing you boasting about how good you are and about your accomplishments and about all you've done, etc. But He knows the blackness, the darkness that's in your heart. You know, we've all got a dark side, you might say. And God knows your heart. You can fool people, but you can't fool God. And so God knows that you need a Savior. He knows that you need His provision for your sin. So what about good works? So if you're saved by grace, as it says, what about good works? Well, the very next verse, Ephesians 2, 9, 2, 9 and 10 if you look at verse 10, tells you the place of works. For we are his workmanship. So after we have been saved, after we have received God's grace, then we become God's workmanship who is created in Christ. So now that we are in that position of having that relationship with Christ, what happens? We now are in position to do good works. So he says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So he saves us, and the process after our salvation is that we do good works. So now you've got the truth that good works come from being saved. They are as a result of your salvation. They don't lead you up to salvation. They don't, they're not the basis of salvation, but they're the result of salvation. So that is just bass backwards from the way the world thinks of this. But it's all important to understand that. Okay? So Calvin, you know, we've all heard of John Calvin, great theologian. He said it well. He said, we are saved by a faith that works. But a saving faith always produces good works. So he recognized just what Paul was saying here. You're saved only by the grace of God, and you receive it by faith, just as we read. But that faith, the quality of that faith is one that will cause us to do, to move us afterwards to do good works. The result will be good works. All right? Second, uh, how not to get into heaven is tradition. Tradition is a powerful force. You know, our, what our parents did and said, what their parents or grandparents, or what, what are the traditions of your family, of maybe uh, the people you were with, of your country, your race, whatever. These traditions, they, they can be wonderful, but they certainly cannot save us. That's not what saves us. So whether it be religious traditions, 
uh, people say, well, I grew up doing it like this, or I grew up believing this, or they, whoever they is, told me, you know, so these traditions have this influence and this power over us that this, they try to exert. Uh, a great, it's probably true, but it sounds more like a joke, but you know, uh, about 40 years ago, they came up with all these new English translations, the NIV and the New American Standard and several others, that were a great improvement over the old King James Version. The old King James Version was translated into, into the Greek manuscript that they had at that time, which wasn't very good, was translated into that old English language back in 1611. But because of the traditions, people were very reluctant to change the translation. And, it, and the story goes that uh, one church said, look, we're not changing. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. <laughs> right? <laughs> and that's kind of how people think of traditions, you know. Uh, I don't like change, and this is what I've always had, and this is what I'm sticking with, uh, even though obviously the new translations are way better. Uh, third thing, how, how not to get to heaven, thirdly, is people trust in their religion. They, they have some religion, and it may be just a philosophy, their personal philosophy, or it may be, may be some religious tradition. Either way, they trust that, and that's just going to take them in the wrong direction. That's going to make them think that, you know, again, you're saved by what you do and what you observe and your own performance. Uh, this can come in the form of... Uh, any, you know, ritual or some type of denominations tradition that's not biblical. There, it comes in many facets. Somebody said, uh, here's a list of ways you know you're in a bad church. Here's a list of ways you know you're in a bad church. The church bus has a gun rack. <laughs> you don't want to go. The Bible they use is the Dr. Seuss version. Now that's not a good one. Uh, there's an ATM in the lobby. The choir, the choir wears leather robes. Uh, their motto is BYOS, bring your own snake. That you don't want to go there. Uh, the communion, there's no charge to get into the church, but the communion is a two-drink minimum. Uh, the ushers, when you're seated, the ushers ask you, smoking or non-smoking? And worship time involves karaoke music. You don't want to go to that church, right? Uh, but that, that religious tradition does have a powerful force upon people. Uh, and then fourthly, uh, nationality, heredity, family. You know, when I was growing up, people would say, uh, are you a Christian? And they go, well, yeah, I'm an American. You know, this guy, you know, if you're an American, you're a Christian. And so that was kind of, kind of became confused with, you know, your nationality. Uh, also, in Jesus' day, their heredity was all important. They said, we're a son of Abraham. Abraham was our father, so we're the chosen race, right? But Jesus corrected that. Paul also corrected that. Jesus said in John 8, 39, if you are truly Abraham's children, have the faith of Abraham. Do the deeds of Abraham. Have that faith as he had. Uh, believe in me as he did. Paul in Romans 9, 6 says, They are not all Israel who are descended 
from Israel. And there in Romans 9, he goes on to say, uh, who is Abraham anyway? Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. And his children are the spiritual descendants who also have the faith. And, of course, Paul's Jewish, so he, he can say that, right? Uh, and then the, uh, the fifth way, the how not to get to heaven, how not to be saved, fifthly, it's not by what you might call intellectual assent. By that I mean you have head knowledge, and you think that's all you need. Well, I know what, I know what this Bible says. I know what the gospel is, and, and that's basically it. You don't go any further. You don't commit yourself. So... What does it mean by faith, and what, is, what kind of belief are we talking about? Um, the, the faith and the belief that the Bible's talking about is faith and the belief of the correct object of your faith. In other words, the truth. So it's not some other gospel. It's not some other Savior. It's the, the truth about Jesus Christ, okay? So you, you have faith in the truth, and then secondly, it involves a commitment on our part. More than intellectual assent, oh yeah, just like I believe Abraham Lincoln was president during the Civil War, I also believe Jesus died and he was a historical figure and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's just intellectual assent. But no, this is a life commitment. I turn my life over to Christ. He is now my Savior, now rules my life. And so uh, the, the faith that the Bible's talk, talking about is strong. It, it's commitment. It's, okay, a change, right? Uh, and so those are the how not to's. Uh, and of course, salvation is the, the application of the work of Christ, the atoning work of Christ. Christ has done, done something on our uh, behalf, and we have taken it as our own. We have appropriated it by faith. It is the Bible is taken for granted. We're going to take it for granted here. as Because last week we studied the nature of man. We take it for granted that we all need it. We all need our sins to be atoned for. We all need the atonement that Christ accomplished, right? We're all subject to original sin. And by the way, no matter what denomination you come from, every, I promise you every single one of them believes in the doctrine of original sin. I checked it out unless you don't come from any Christian background, they all take it as an assumption that the atonement is necessary to be saved because of original sin. I'm a sinner. Okay, so we're all, being a sinner, we're all alienated from God and are by nature missing the standard set by God. Remember Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, and the wages of sin is death, so we're all spiritually dead, which is the essence of that is being separated from God. Therefore, we need to be brought back into that relationship. We're alienated. We need to be restored. That's where we are. We take that as an assumption. Now, the basis for that restoration, that basis for that salvation and our forgiveness is the atoning work of Christ on the cross. And he acted in order to accomplish that, he acted as our substitute. What we deserve, he took. He was our substitute. He died in our place so that we could live. I like the way Paul put it in 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. Uh, Paul said, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, he was in heaven as God, enjoying all the glory 
And every th all the worship do him as God in heaven, but he didn't hold on to that spiritual riches, but he gave it up, and it says, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor. In other words, he took on the flesh, became a human being, lived here in this dark world. He became poor, and why would he do that? That you through his poverty might become rich. So the substitutionary nature of the work of Christ. Uh, the means of receiving that atonement, that work of Christ in our behalf, uh, the means of receiving it, of course, as we read, is by faith. We commit our lives to it. We believe in it in a, in a very strong way, and we entrust ourselves. So you hear those words all the time, belief, trust, faith. They're all the same thing in the, in, in the relationship uh, that we have with Christ. Uh, we entrust ourselves to him. Uh, and we undergo a complete change in our life because of it. Our agenda changes, our way of thinking, our desires, everything therefore will change because of what we have committed ourselves to, the new thing we've committed ourselves to. So this faith-based experience of believing in Jesus is seen uh, in Scripture and in our experience as a life-changing experience. Our lives have been changed. We're new people. We're different. Paul talks about that a lot. And we looked at that last week. He says, should we continue in sin? He said, that makes no sense. You're a different person now. All that's behind you. The new person now lives for Christ. The old person lived for themselves. The new person lives for Christ. The prophets Jeremiah and Ezekiel talked about this, and he said the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, or the Old Testament and the New Testament, is that in the New Covenant, the New Testament, you'll have a new heart. So the Holy Spirit comes into you. God gives us his Holy Spirit when we believe in Jesus, and the Holy Spirit begins to change your heart. Called, the theologians call that regeneration. We, go, we undergo this natural change by the work of the Holy Spirit within us. So God is at work within us. So we're changing within and how we live on the outside is a, you might say, a result of or a manifestation of this change in our heart that's occurring in our heart that God is solely responsible for. So we make the, the, the voluntary, we, our volition to receive Christ, and then God begins a new work of regeneration within us. We become new people because of the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, the atonement, I always heard that word, you know, growing up, and I was going, now what is that? You know, and, and nobody seemed to know. You know, it's just some fancy theological term. But basically, it literally means living in harmony with God. So the idea is we were alienated from God because of original sin and our own sin. We were alienated, but now through what the work Jesus has done, we're now in harmony or we're now in relationship, a new relationship with God based on what Jesus did. That's the atonement. Think of restitution, appeasement, making amends, you know, however you want to put it, but it's all based on what Jesus did. But we now have this new relationship, back in relationship with God that we were always created to have. And God's requirement for justice has been satisfied by what Jesus did, the atonement. So the punishment due the sinner is inflicted upon the Savior, Jesus.
accomplished it. He did it for us. Why would God go to such great pains? Why would he send his own son? Why would he take on the flesh and go through all that abuse that he went through? John 3.16. Well, what's his motivation? Why would he do it? Love. Purely. That's it. The love of God. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. John 3.16. So God is motivated purely by love. Um, and, therefore, he had to come in the world. So the incarnation that we celebrate on Christmas, the incarnation when Jesus took on the flesh and became the God-man, was absolutely necessary. Great theologian in the 12th century, Anselm, said it well. He said, only a man ought to pay the price for sin. And since only God could pay the necessary price to atone for sin, then only the God-man can pay the price. See how that worked? He's absolutely right. A man should pay, but only God can pay. So God took on the flesh as a man paid as our substitute. Throughout Scripture, the idea of substitution is prevalent. It's always there. All the way back with Abraham, he had the scapegoat, remember? Uh, the scapegoat came out there uh, in Genesis 22. Then in Exodus, you had the moral ordinance of the Passover, all about the uh, sacrificial lamb. Uh, and uh, Isaiah, the prophet, saw Jesus as a type, or he actually saw the lamb as a type of the sacrifice that Jesus was going to make. And he predicted there in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be that sacrificial lamb. And he said, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. That's what Jesus was like. Um, in Acts 8.32, we're told there that Jesus was the one who fulfilled all that. Uh, John the Baptist pointed to Jesus when he came up to him there in uh, John 1. John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So he is that sacrificial lamb. You hear the term redemption. It's the idea of a slave being bought. A slave is sold out, but now he's bought back. We're, we're likened to that throughout the New Testament, and we're bought. We are slaves to sin. We're alienated in that sense. So we're, we have a different master, but now we've been bought by the blood of Christ. Peter said it great in 1 Peter 1.18. He said, you were not redeemed by perishable things like silver and gold. You were redeemed by the precious blood, the blood of Christ. So again, uh, as I said earlier, what God's holiness demanded, God's justice and holiness demanded, God's love provided. Isn't that great? That's a real a short way to explain the gospel. What God's holiness demanded, God's love provided. Uh, a related term is justification. You may have heard that. That's more of a legal term, uh, a judicial term. We're brought up before uh, the judge on the final day, on the last day, you know, before your maker. But you are declared righteous because the payment has been made, Right? Your, your sentence has already been served, so to speak, by Christ. So God remains a righteous judge who passes judgment on sin, but the way he accomplishes that without sending us to hell is that he pays the price himself. 
And so real quickly, the order of salvation, you know, what's the process here? Uh, what's the sequence? How does this happen? Uh, am I just super smart and I figured this whole thing out one day? I'm sitting around thinking and I go, oh, this is how I think it happened. You know, no. No, that doesn't happen. It didn't happen in any of the Bible stories. In all the Bible stories, it happens the exact same way. And in all the lives here, it happens in the exact same way. And that is detailed for us. If you want, to, I won't take time to have you turn there. But uh, Romans 8, 29 through 30 kind of lays it out, the sequence out. Uh, it starts with the preparation of the Holy Spirit. You have the Trinity, and the Holy Spirit's function is to prepare hearts to understand and to receive Jesus as our Savior. Uh, and he uses typically the Word of God or the Gospel. You have to hear it and you have to understand it and believe, your, and believe in it, commit yourself to it. So somehow God takes the initiative. We don't really understand it. Uh, theologians argue about it. It's not really necessary that we do understand it, but we know that it happens. Uh, Timothy, in Paul's letter to Timothy, 2 Timothy 1.9, he says, We have been called, God has called us with a holy calling. So God calls, he prepares, it's an effective call, we hear, uh, and we respond. So God has done some kind of work in our heart, woken us up somehow, he might use uh, he might use the, the stuff that's going on in your life to get your attention. Everybody's different. But God is no doubt somehow involved in it. And Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6, God is the one who has shone in our hearts, shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God in Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God is active, working within you, to help you understand and believe and be prepared to believe. Uh, and so, second part is that uh, God, God has prepared us to believe, but we have, we have a job too. Our conversion, ultimately, according to the Bible, is our responsibility. We have to actually step out and make that commitment and believe and say, okay, now that I know the truth and, and I believe it, I'm going to commit myself to it. I mean, that's, that's a big leap, you know? People struggle with that because they don't want to give up their lives that they have now because they feel like, well, I have to give up all my friends and all the stuff that I do. and <laughs> I'm not sure I'm ready to do that, you know? So it is, uh, in that sense, a volitional choice, and we are responsible. The Bible quite often talks about our responsibility. It's clear that we have it. So we're involved as well. Our free will is involved. We have to step over that line and make that choice. And then after we make that choice and, may, and commit our lives to Christ, what happens? That's when the Holy Spirit begins. He fulfills us. I mean, he, he comes inside of us, and he changes us from the inside out, right? Uh, we call it as I said before, regeneration. The Holy Spirit indwelling us, working within us, changing our heart, and a lot of people look at that and say, well, I grew spiritually. Well, that was also your volition, but it also was the work of the, of the Holy Spirit. It was the two working together. You had to make the choice to study the Word of God or to go to church and all the religious disciplines, but God used them to help you, and that was the Holy Spirit working within you. So you're studying the Word of God, the light bulb comes on, and you understand a passage that you never understood before. 
what just happened. You're not that smart. I'll testify. I know you. No, the Spirit of God has turned that light bulb on. We were talking about it at lunch. I mean, you study a passage over and over, and maybe you don't get it, or you don't fully get it, and all of a sudden, it takes on new meaning, new life. You go, now I get that. That must have just been written there. <laughs> now it's been there for 2,000 years. That was the Holy Spirit finally tuning you into it. Uh, the fourth part of this process is what you might call God's providential guidance. Romans 8, 28 says, God works all things together for good to those who love the Lord. And there's a lot of passages that are related or similar to that. But basically what it's saying is, all the things that are going on in life, all the little pieces to the puzzle, which is our life, all the little stimuli and the circumstances, wherever you go, whatever you do, God is somehow in his omniscience and his all-powerful, his om omnipotence, He's causing all that to work in our life so that eventually it'll all turn out well. I know that some of the things that happen don't seem like that in any way that that's possible. But God's in charge of that, so we'll let him be the judge of that. So God's providential guidance, we see that in the Bible as well as we live. All the things that are going on, we... Uh, Paul, you know, when he's in prison, and you'll see it in the book of Philippians, he thanks God, he rejoices in all this going on. They say, yeah, but you're in prison, and they're going to execute you. He says, yeah, but the guard, the praetorian guard that's guarding me, I get access to these guys, and I get to witness to them every day, and the whole praetorian guard is coming to Christ. This is awesome. <laughs> you know, I mean, to the world, that's insanity. How can anybody rejoice about being in jail and being on death row? But that's the difference. That's God. He sees his situation there, being in jail, as the providence of God. And this great thing's going to come out of it, and of course it did. The last, the ultimate phase uh, in this uh, concept of salvation, as we're trying to get to heaven, find the way to heaven, is that final glorification, taken up taken out of the presence of sin. You could say you're three Ps. You're saved from the penalty of sin when you believe in Christ, and then as you live, you're being saved from the power of sin that's trying to exert its force on you, but then ultimately you're saved from the presence of sin. When you go to be with the Lord and you get your resurrection body and you're in glory, we call that glorification. That's the ultimate phase. Uh, and so... Uh, that's the process. I don't know if you followed all that. Uh, the preparation of, of, of God to get you to here, and then your uh, commitment to him through belief and faith, the regeneration, the providential guidance, and the glorification. Uh, and as you look at the Old Testament, all that stuff happens. Look at the life of Abraham. When you look at Abraham, he was just, he was, Joshua 24 says he was a pagan idol worshiper living in Ur of the Chaldeas when God called him. And prepared him. And, he, and then he came, he obeyed God's calling and came to uh, Canaan. Not because he's some great guy. You used to say, well, he must have really been something special. No, as you study the decisions he made and the things he did, he's as big a sinner or worse than we are. I mean, he was totally undeserving, but it's all by the grace of God. 
Abraham. And then God slowly but surely changed his heart, made him a different person, and then through his circumstances, the providence of God was working th throughout his life. You see? And we know that he was saved by the grace of God and he received it by faith because uh, the Bible tells us in uh, uh, Genesis 15, 6, it says, when Abraham believed God, something happened. God reckoned that belief to him as righteousness. God declared him righteous, not on the basis of his works, but on the basis of his belief. So even in the very beginning, it was always the same. The same method of salvation, and it's received in the same way as well. Uh, God always initiates the contact, and then we make the decision to come and then you have the providential guidance and the change in the person's life. It's always the same throughout Scripture. Uh, let me jump forward uh, to my favorite story in the Bible, probably yours too, is the story, great examples, the parable of the prodigal son. What happened there? It's a story about two sons and a father, and the, the, uh, the sons represent the lost human race. Very clear the lost human race, the two sons. And the loving, compassionate father represents God. And God in his wisdom, or the father in his wisdom, allows the sons to rebel and experience alienation. People say, well, why would God let that happen? And the Bible is clear. It says God turned them over. That's, that's what is going on in the world. People have said, well, I'm going to make my own decisions and go my own way. I know what's best. I'm the master of my fate and commander of my ship. And God says, okay, let's see how that works. <laughs> You're going to do what you want to do, how and when you want to do it. And the result is the world as we know it, this huge mess that we live in. And so the youngest son denies the father, goes off, experiences that brokenness, at his, at his lowest ebb, he comes to his senses and he repents and confesses, comes back to the father. And then you have the oldest, oldest son who claims to be obedient to the father. This is the Pharisees in Jesus' day that thought that they had it made, that it was all about them, that they were good and they kept the law. They were saved by their own works. So the older son, he's legalistic and he makes the boast, oh, this... Older son, he doesn't deserve. I can't believe you brought him back. What he, the older son says about himself, I, on the other hand, have never neglected a command of yours. Really? <laughs> you know that that's a lie, right? I mean, for the first, I mean, the most obvious thing is, is that what about loving your brother? I wish that, you know, in the story the father would say that. Oh, then, well, my command to you then is to love your brother. <laughs> Because yeah, obviously you're not going to do that. And so they were in both in need of the grace, the gift of the Father, which is freely given, but they have to receive it by faith. They have to entrust their lives to the Father, which the youngest son did. And we never know if the oldest son did or not. It leaves us hanging, right? But that oldest son that you know, is commanded to love his brother I, I saw, you know, true story, kind of, all, I, I think it's hilarious, but uh, it don't, actually when I was at DT, DTS, Dallas Seminary, 
There were two theologians there who were really well known. They both wrote a lot of books. And one of them wrote a kind of a best-selling Christian book, at least, entitled Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus. And it did real well, and everybody was familiar with it. Uh, this is like 25, 30 years ago. And uh, years later, he started having this, this real divisive uh, rivalry with this other professor, they were both writing books. And so this guy who had written Come to Jesus wrote another book critical of, that, the, of his rival. Just a scathing book against this guy. And he called one of his friends and he says, well, I got this new book that's being published and I'm trying to come up with a title for it. And his friend says, oh, here's the, here's the title that will work great. Call it Go to Hell by the Author of Come to Jesus. <laughs> Isn't that great? True story. <laughs> so these guys that were holding themselves up, I mean, it happens to everybody, as holier than thou, and they were shamed, just like we all are, just like the older brother in the parable is. So we're all saved by the grace of God, who's the atoning work, who, who performs the atoning work to bring us back into a relationship he did it at the cross, and we receive all this by God's grace by responding in faith. It's the same for us. It's the same for these professors. Same for the prodigal son. Same for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Same for everybody. And one last story uh, in, in closing, just to illustrate that, that commitment, how strong that faith is that, that we need to have to make sure that we're committed. And you've probably heard this, but it's just... I, I never get tired of telling this. It's about the tightrope walker. Uh, there really used to be a tightrope that spanned Niagara Falls. And there was a sign up that said tightrope walker. And there was a guy there who had the tights on and the little slippers, you know. And he would walk across the tightrope. And then one time he even pushed a wheelbarrow across. And when he came back, he told his audience, and he was talking to one guy, and he said, Sir, do you believe I can walk across Niagara Falls. And the guy said, sure, I believe it. Do you believe I can push this wheelbarrow across? Yes. Do you believe I can put a man in this wheelbarrow and push him across? The guy said, absolutely, no problem. He says, then get in. <laughs> now that would be a commitment. Right? But so many people just won't get in. That's the intellectual ascent versus the total commitment that we need and that Jesus expects. Let me close in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for blessing us. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. Thank you for that love that moved you to send Jesus to save us. And Lord, we just praise you and thank you for that and uh, pray that you would continue your work in us and changing our lives and using us in your service. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.